you've read through the Bible several times, like many in the room here, and uh, I probably read over Isaiah 55, I don't know, I, I can speculate on maybe how many times. But one day I was driving across the I-5 bridge in traffic, which, if you... you read? Pardon? You read? Uh, well, if you know anything about I-5 bridge in traffic, it's actually mostly stopped. <laughs> and and uh, so in my mostly stopped uh, experience in, on the I-5 bridge, I was reading my Bible. I figure I'm going to redeem the time, right? And, uh, and I turned to Isaiah 55, and it just, it struck me in a way um, that was very profound. Uh, you know, it's like a lot of times we read the Bible, and we'll reread it and reread it, and one day we'll be walking along, and we'll look down, and we'll see that shiny diamond or that gold nugget. For me, that's what happened on the I-5 bridge that day with Isaiah 55. So it's always been very special to me. But it's, I think, particularly relevant to what we're looking at this morning, which is John chapter 6. And uh, who can tell me about John chapter 6? Who can tell me about John? What's John about? I made it easy for you. I put it up on the... That's right. John 20, 31. Very good. And I said I would read it every week, so I will. Um, I think this is one that we need to have etched into our brains. Uh, it says in John chapter 20, he gives us his, his thesis statement. And he said, I'll, I'll always go back to verse 30 to set context. It says, therefore, many other signs... Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So there are some things that, that John wants us to know and understand. He wants us to understand who Christ is. And he wants us to understand not just who Christ is, but that Jesus, the man, is the Christ, and that the Christ is the Son of God. So that means that we have God coming down uh, to earth in human form. He's both God, fully God, and fully man. He's the Son of God. And that believing, you may have life in his name. So he wants to tell us something about the mission of what the Christ is intending to do, and what uh, what that means to us. It means that we have life. And this isn't just... Um, it, it's eternal life. Right? And that that's significant. So, as we've been going through John, and John's been uh, doing this very uh, careful exposition to help us understand who Jesus is and uh, how he is the Christ and how uh, he is the Son of God, uh, we kind of... I've been following along a particular uh, path that John set for us, which I outline as, as this. We're, we're right now in the, um, the first major portion of the book. There's a prologue that was written actually after the main portion of John's Gospel uh, that is more of a theological introduction to uh, his exposition. And then there's his exposition, which is broken up into three parts which is sometimes called the Book of Miracles. It's Jesus' public ministry. Um, then there's his personal ministry, ministry to the disciples. And then there's uh, the crucifixion, uh, death of Christ, and resurrection on Easter. 
for us and that story of the suffering and glory of Christ. And then there's an encouragement that he put at the end, which when we get to that, we'll talk about that. But that's kind of the structure that we've been following. So we've been looking at the public ministry of Christ, and um, this is all outlines or organizations other than the original authors. You know, we, we can't actually pry into what John's uh, unwritten intent was, but we can kind of surmise based on structure what he's trying to do. And so this is my um, assembly of what that public ministry is, is looking at. It's looking at uh, re- Jesus as the replacement and fulfillment of what the Jewish religious expectation was. So John was a Jew, and he was writing to both Jews and Gentiles. So he was writing to the early church, which was a mix of folks. Um, he was writing to Christians. But nonetheless, most of them had a Jewish background at the time, point in time that John was writing, where they knew the stories from a Jewish tradition. And so he's writing specifically to show how Jesus was um, answering the questions that the Jews had been asking for centuries. And specifically, he was targeting institutions and festivals of Judaism. Institutions being institution of purification in the wedding ceremony and what that means and that joy um, that is around that. The institution of the temple, uh, and that's where you come face to face with God and in, in the understanding of Jewish tradition. Um, the teaching ministry that was part of Judaism as a religious practice. And then the traditions, which we saw in the well in Samaria. Right? So he's, we see that John's early focus in public ministry, this book of signs or miracles, um, was focused on uh, challenging and helping to us to understand the true nature of what these institutions are about. The second part of that public ministry is about festivals in Judaism. And we looked at uh, the Sabbath. And the Sabbath keeps coming up over and over and over again because it keeps coming up over and over and over again every seven days. So uh, most people wouldn't actually classify that as a festival, but in fact it is. Within the Jewish religious tradition, that is something that they have a festival practice around. Um, It isn't the same as the three great festivals Passover and uh, Festival of Booths and uh, Pentecost, but nonetheless, it is um, one of those traditional um, festivals that the Jews practice and have specific um, tradition and law around the Sabbath. And what we saw is that Jesus specifically challenged that by healing the guy on the Sabbath. And this is going to come up again um, when he's actually accused. The thing that irked the Jews the most was that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And that was just not okay. And we're going to see in the next chapter how in in chapter 5 he challenged it straight on, in chapter 7 he's going to challenge it straight on. In chapter 6, he's trying to, uh, in addition to the the Sabbath festival, he's also trying to uh, help the Jews understand what the Passover is all about. So what is the Passover? You guys know what the Passover is? I know you do. Tell me about the Passover. What is Passover? 
the angel of death will pass over the um, Jews. Right. So why did the, the angel of death need to pass over the Jews? Because they want to kill them. Um, why, why were they in danger of being killed? So they could get released from uh, Egypt. There we go. So the Jews were someplace, or the Hebrews, the Jews is a name that was given to them later, uh, the remnant of Judea. But the Hebrews, uh, Hebrew children that were descendants of Jacob, ended up in Egypt, which is not where they were supposed to be. It wasn't the promised land. It wasn't necessarily what they were directed to do initially, but they ended up there through God's providence, Mm -hmm. that it was God's intent to preserve life. And it was God's intent... Um, to transform these people in in such a way that they would be um, a representative, they would be a nation of priests to the world. And yet they ended up going to Egypt and they got fat and happy and uh, settled there, and so God moved them uh, very graciously, but through a great set of miracles. And that we understand that there was a, a series of plagues. The last plague was a plague of death death of the firstborn. And um, I, I forgot my power supply, so this thing's going to go on and off. I apologize for that. Um, so what happened is that um, Moses was given revelation that God would come uh, through and take the firstborn of all, all critters, including humans, right? So it involved both the, the livestock as well as the families. Well, um, the Jews were said that they would be safe, they would have salvation, if they took the blood of a lamb, and they took that blood, and they put that blood on the doorposts of their, where they would enter in and exit from their home. And if they would actually eat that Passover lamb. Could the Egyptians have done the same? If the Egyptians had practiced the same, my, uh, my speculation is, is that God is a just God, and he would have passed over the Egyptians too. But we know that the Egyptians didn't. Well, in fact, there were some, though, that did, because yeah. there was a mixed multitude that went up out of... There were Egyptians that went along with them, so right. they must have been in a house that were blood applied. Right. And, and, there's, and then we get to kind of like, well, how do you deal with these folks that aren't of the tribes of, of Jacob, and yet they're associated with the Jews. So there were early proselyte type, um, those that embraced the religious practice of the Jews, and actually heard the revelation. But it wasn't, uh, that wasn't the kind of the way that it went on the whole. So in large, um, people followed their leaders. Their leaders said, no, we're not going to let our workforce go. Um, this is too important to us. We are going to take their property. We are going to take their person, and they are going to be con- conscripted labor for us. And they were so threatened by the loss of the Jews that they greatly oppressed them. And that's why the people were crying out. That's kind of how God put them in the vice to get them to cry out to him uh, that started this whole thing, that they needed to get back on the plan of God. They needed to get back into what he intended for them. So they got squeezed a little bit. Nobody in here has ever experienced that, where they've been outside of God's plan and gotten squeezed a little bit. But that's what happened to the Jews, right? Um, 
I don't know, I've been squeezed. I don't know about you guys. But. <laughs> so the, the whole thing was about this lamb. And it was, there was a whole way that they were supposed to prepare the lamb and eat the lamb. And uh, they could leave nothing left. They had to consume it wholly. There was to be nothing left in the morning when they, when they uh, woke up. And so that's what the Passover is, right? Well, the context of John chapter 6 is in the context of the Passover. And we know that as a result of the angel passing over the, uh, the families of the Jews and their, and their property, that there was a great exodus from Egypt, that the people ended up being led by Moses out of Egypt and Pharaoh said, go, good riddance. In fact, we'll give you some booty to, to get you out of here. They gave him some goods, and these people packed in a moment's notice and hit the road, and there was a lot of them. And they're heading out into the desert, and then Pharaoh changed his mind. And he comes after them, and we know that they get between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea, and they were stuck. They were squeezed again. And they cried out, and Moses uh, through God's intervention, was there at the point where God did a great miracle and parted the waters. Right. So the miracle is not attributed to Moses. It's not like the Ten Commandments that you saw in the Hollywood movie with uh, Charlton Heston, and it was actually much more phenomenal than that. And that these people um, were hard-pressed, army coming after them. They had their chariots, which is equivalent of tanks and armored vehicles, coming after them, chasing them into a corner, and the, the corner all of a sudden parted, and a wind came and dried the ground, and they went through on dry ground. And the Egyptians saw this, and they started following them. They got halfway in there, and the waters came down and swallowed up the Egyptians. And then there was a big hoedown on the other beach. <laughs> no, seriously, it was. You know, it's in Exodus, and, and you've got Moses' song and celebration. And, and then they went from there, and they went in the desert to the mountain of God. And at the mountain of God is a place where they were to meet God. So this is kind of, you see how some of these religious um, traditions, institutions, the temple, comes about. They were supposed to meet with God face to face. And the people said, no, he's too scary. You go for us. So Moses goes up and, and he meets with God. And God declares what it is like to be in his kingdom. That they need their citizenship changed. They're no longer citizens of this world. <clears throat> they're citizens of the kingdom of God. And God is their king. And there, there's a, a, a declaration of who God is and his righteousness. And we understand that as the Ten Commandments. That's what's going on. That's the context of all of this story of the Passover. It's the story of um, not being not where you're supposed to be and that God provides a way for you to go from death into life. And then he, he's, his whole goal is to be in communion with you. Now we know that the Jews didn't get it the Hebrew children. They ended up going and winding in the desert and uh, because they would not enter into God's promise God didn't abandon them but he provided for them until one would come that would be the perfect provision. 
And you see that if you go back into Genesis, there is a declaration about uh, Judah and his tribe, his descendants, one of which would be that one, the Messiah. And you, you, we recently went through Genesis, and I don't know if you remember, were you there when we read through that? All of Genesis? No, 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 that particular section of Genesis where it talks about uh, when, um, okay, here, I'll, I'll read it. It's in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8. Um, Jacob is going through and he's blessing his children. And in many ways, this is kind of uh, prophetic, and it's foretelling um, what their destiny would be. And we get to uh, Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. <clears throat> Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who, who dares rouse him? The scepter, that is the right to rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Or another way of saying that, until the one to whom it belongs comes. So this was told way back when, and this is all the setting for the whole, uh, you know, them ending up in Egypt where they didn't belong, them ending up in the time of the kings, right? So you, you go from the, when they finally did enter into the land in Joshua, and then they get to the time when they tried to self-rule um, through the judges, and every man did what was right in his own eyes, and then you had the coming of the kings. We read about in Samuel, and the great king, David, of whom another promise was made through the line of David, who was from Judah, the tribe of Judah. This one would come, this one Shiloh. Well, that's what's going on here in John chapter 6. Um, Jesus is helping them understand what this Passover is all about. And he does it in the context of something that they experienced while they were in the desert, which was manna. Who knows what manna is? Right. They didn't know what it was. They said, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? <clears throat> but what we know is that it was just enough. Um, it wasn't more than they needed. Although it could carry them over a Sabbath. Right? And it was there and part of their life and sustained them completely while they were in the, the desert wandering. Now, the thing about manna is because it was just enough, that meant it had to be consumed wholly and because you couldn't carry it in your pocket. It wasn't going to last for an extra day. You couldn't capture the provision of God. You had to actually consume it. You had to uh, have it become part of you in order to have that sustenance, that provision. And that provision was life-giving. like the lamb. Pardon? Like the lamb. Like the lamb. Had to be consumed wholly. And what you're seeing here is you're seeing two images that are brought up in this Passover story. The story of the bread that was sustenance for them, that was given from heaven, by God for his people that was complete. They lacked nothing in that. 
In addition to that, you see the picture of the blood of the lamb that was shed that made it possible for those people to go from where they were not supposed to be to get into the place that they were supposed to be in communion with God. Right? So I just condensed a whole bunch of history for you, but that's what John did in chapter 6. And that he's telling, uh, retelling this account when Jesus approached the people because they had a great misunderstanding. They had a misunderstanding about what their religious practice was. They had a misunderstanding about who Messiah was, the Christ. They had a misunderstanding about even what God's purpose was. Right? And that's what we see uh, the, the setting of this is. It's set in the context of feeding God's people, feeding 5,000. Yes? So the whole concept of, of man is a great example of how God wants us to live. That he wants us to live off of him daily. Right. Yes. And don't worry about next week. Just worry about you know, he'll supply enough for today. That's right. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And he, he says in um, verse 12 of chapter 6, he says, um, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Yep. So what, what do you suppose that's about? So here you go from five barley loaves, which is the food of the poor, and a couple of fish, and this is a poor boy's lunch, right, um, to 12 baskets full. What do you suppose that's about? That God can satisfy all of our daily needs. That's right. That it doesn't matter what you start with. Um, God is the originator of life. He has life in himself, which we read in the, the previous chapter. He is able to make uh, something out of nothing. In fact, he's able to make everything out of nothing. And to, but to gather for the day, because we have to be in the source. We have to be in the source and gathering it, just like you said, yep. for each day. And, and so what happened is, is the people saw this, and what was their response? Free food. That's right. Woohoo! The Burger King has arrived. Right? Well, they, they said this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So they recognized it as miraculous, but they misunderstood what the miracle was about. What did they think the miracle was about? Some more, some more food the next day. That's right. They, these people were poor, so this is the poor part of the, the country. Um, they uh, were under an oppressive government. Even though they were removed from the, the major seat of that government, um, it was nearby. In fact, it's even mentioned as part of this account. Um, they were up here in, uh, in Galilee, and we're going to zoom in a little bit. So they were here in Galilee, and... Tiberias was a ruling city for the government. So, and these people were from all around this area, right? This area over here is what's called the Decapolis. This area up here was the major trading uh, ports uh, on the, the major north-south that came through Galilee. Um, so uh, Matthew, the tax collector, for example, came from here. Um, this is what's going on. These people are poor, they're oppressed, they all of a sudden are fed. They think, wow, 
We can be fed every day. We just need to keep this guy around. And they said, more. And Jesus said, no, 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 you misunderstand. He said, you seek me not because you saw, or not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And then he gives them a statement, a truth. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. That is, the Son of Man is the one who, you read in in Daniel 7.13, whom God set his seal upon to be the king. This is the one to whom uh, all provision, or from whom all provision comes, right? And he's saying, you need to not be worrying about filling your bellies. You need to be worrying about eternal life. That's why I started with Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 says what Jesus said, right? This was long before Jesus came along. And so Jesus is trying to help them understand this manna story. He's trying to help them understand the Passover so as we move through chapter 4, um, he addresses specifically the issue of manna in the wilderness and what that bread out of heaven is all about, right? And he makes a statement. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and who, he who believes in me will never thirst. So he's making a statement that that bread that comes out of heaven is him. He is the one that that bread was all about. He is real bread. Yeah, Dave, question. I may be trying to make a connection that doesn't exist, but I'm comparing the, the manna issue where they were not to uh, collect more than needed for that day and would spoil on them versus the, the 12 baskets. Is there a message in that change too? Um, you don't read about the 12 baskets the next day, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. So sometimes we, we look at what's left out. It doesn't say that they took the 12 baskets and took them to Capernaum and sold the goods and then showed up the next day to, to get some more. The way I would read it is that all were satisfied to the point that um, the baskets that they used in distribution were full at the end. So it was a true miracle. The number 12 is interesting. Um, why is the number 12 interesting? 12 tribes. Yeah. Well, tribes. In other words, God's going to provide for everybody. Is there a message in the fact that it's okay to gather leftovers now where it wasn't then or sometimes we'll fill the thing out here or something? It may not be a connection. But what happened was is that they gathered the leftovers. In other words, people weren't left with food in their pockets. Um, And that, you know, just just so that the people understood that this was a, a bountiful provision we have leftovers, right? But we don't know the, what happened to those leftovers. We know that it didn't remain with the people because they gathered it up. So similar to the, to the manna story. Um, I'm, I'm, the manna was, uh, by description, much more tasty than the barley loaves. So uh, I, can, I can think that they probably actually would have craved the manna and it would have not would have not well, stayed with Well, yeah, they got they got tired of God's provision and wanted their own. So God said, I'm still the provider, but if you want me, here you go. You can have so much it'll be coming out your nose. Uh, 
And, and that's interesting because that story, you know, when you hear about the whining of the people, and here the people are whining, you read about the whining of the people, and it gets to a point where um, God gets so frustrated with them because he's doing this incredible provision for his people. He's bringing life where there is no life. He's sustaining them in the desert. Their sandals don't wear out. They always have water to drink. They always have food to, to eat. And they're still whining. It's like, this isn't enough, God. So he says, well, let the snakes come out. And the snakes come out and are biting the people. Right? And what happens is, is that the people then start crying out to God, finally, instead of in complaint, uh, for, for salvation from the snakes. So Moses is instructed to take one of those snakes and put it on a stick and put it on the edge of the camp. And if anybody is bitten by a snake, all they have to do is look at that snake on the pole and they will live. It's interesting that John captures that story as well. In chapter 3, when he's looking at what this teaching ministry was all about to the teacher, Nicodemus, he actually shares that story. Because he wants Nicodemus to know who the Christ is. And he wants him to know more than just uh, an assent to the fact, but he wants him to actually um, be transformed in such a way that um, he has that life that is in God in himself, that he would be born again. And this is what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify what we have seen. You do not accept our testimony. In other words, you, you may have understanding, but you have no belief. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So that's what's going on here in chapter 6, too. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. So everything that John is sharing that Jesus said, and how Jesus got privileged, or John got privileged to this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, we don't know. But nonetheless, is preserved to help us understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in him is eternal life. Yes? Yeah, yeah so then he says in verse 40 of chapter 6, he says... Uh, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Yep. And so now we're getting into, um, and, and this what you're going to see is you're going to see a continually uh, unpeeling mm-hmm. of the onion, or the, or the petals of the flower to get to that uh, core of the flower. Um, because what's happening is he's giving us a, a really more refined theological understanding of who God is in Christ and what he's doing in redemption. And he keeps moving it down to the point that now he's, he's helping um, them to understand that the Christ has to die in order to conquer death. He has to go through death in order to bring life to those that are already dead, that are caught in death. Because that's where the world is. As a result of the sin of Adam, we are in death. We are separated from God, right? So we, this is what we teach to our kids in, in children's Sunday school, that sin separates you from God. 
that sin separation is so profound that you are already dead apart from Christ. Zombies. That's right. We're zombies. Well, non-Christians. Non-Christians are zombies. And what God wants to do is reanimate. Right? So that's the resurrection on the last day. Now, that's, that's, this is actually probably a terrible metaphor, but nonetheless, you can see that Jesus is really focusing in, trying to help understand what does it mean to believe in the Christ? What does it mean to have life, true life, in him? And how do you get that? And that's where we left off last week. How do you get that? He goes on, he says in verse 41, he says, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall, And they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So the first thing that he helps identify for them is that apart from God, they can't even understand. And when we read in Isaiah uh, chapter 55, it said, Your ways are not my ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. The thoughts of God are so much higher than the thoughts of, of our thoughts just as the heavens are above the earth. We're separated from the understanding of God. And apart from God actually calling us, and and Bob, I didn't hear it when you read out Isaiah 55, but the first word there is hope. Pay attention. Right? This is important, just like when Jesus says, truly, truly, amen, amen. This is what it's about. And we may not understand it, but God actually comes to us. And as a result of him coming to us, we can come to him. We can respond. And that's what he's saying here. Unless the Father who sent me draws him, no one can come to me. But I will raise him up on the last day. Right? So this is what his mission is. It's all about... Um, the mission and the origin of the Christ, what he's about doing. And we go on to read, and I'm not going to go into some of the more complex aspects of uh, election. We've kind of talked about some of those things in the past. But what I am going to go on to, he says, I'm going to bring this up before I go on. It'll probably go away in a minute. I know the battery will last, it's just got the wrong... Okay, so at one point, I listed a uh, what happens when you're saved, right? Um, you know, we read about just as the wind blows, so it is with um, the Spirit of God, that when we're born again, we can't quite put our finger on exactly what it is that God is doing, but in fact, we see the evidence of it. So we know something happens, and as uh, people tend to do, they want to try and stuff things into boxes so that they can put their arms around it and they can understand it. 
We want to make God's understanding our understanding. And we do that in, uh, in part of the Christian church in a, in a study called theology. Right? So we come up with systematic theologies, which is ways of taking these categories, these boxes of who God is and what he's doing, and we try and cram all of our understanding into these different boxes. There's one called soteriology, which is what I brought up earlier, <coughs> which has to do with salvation. This is one of our theological boxes. And uh, being a good Baptist, I gave you uh, a list of eight uh, subdivisions within that box. What happens within salvation? I would say that it's not a box, and it's not eight subdivisions, but you'll recognize some of these things as actually having occurred in your life. And you'll recognize them as actually occurring here in John chapter 6. The idea that God uh, chooses you. God chooses you. And that um, he acts ahead of you acting. That's what these first two are. The idea of election is God choosing. That means that um, God saw you before you saw him. He knew you from before you were born. You read that in Psalm 139. And that he acted for your good before you even knew what good was. That's what prevenient and effectual grace is. Prevenient means that which comes before. And effectual means that it, it, it can't be thwarted. You can't stop it. What God chooses and what he wills to do will be done. And that there is a, a calling that we experience both in a general way and a specific way. And what I would say is, is that the people had seen the general revelation and Jesus has given them the special revelation right now. They understood something about God through his creation. But now they're hearing, they're being taught by God. Those were the words that Jesus, Jesus used. <clears throat> he says, he quotes scripture here, he says, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So you see this kind of decomposition of what happens in salvation as God is coming to us to pluck us out of death into life. And that what happens is that there's a conversion process and a regeneration process. And I'm not going to argue about which comes first or if they come together all mixed up or how that actually works. Because Jesus doesn't tell us. When he's talking to, to Nicodemus, he says, he says this. He says, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. In other words, you must be converted and regenerated. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, but what we do know is that there is a change that is observable. And that that change that is observable is repentance. And it is faith. Faith is that change manifested into action. It changes you so substantially in your heart that you choose different things. That you behave differently as a result of those choices. It's visible. And that we understand that that's God taking your heart of stone and giving you a new heart. You are truly born again. It's not taking that, that uh, old stony heart and massaging life into it. He actually gives you a new heart. Because 
Your other one was corrupted, deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Right? And so that's what's going on here. And ultimately, you get into the next thing I brought up in Wikipedia, which is justification and sanctification. And that's uh, understanding the part that God does for us and the part that we do in concert with God. That's all that is. And people will argue about how much God does for us and how much we do, you know, whether we're saved by works, as the Catholic Church would say, no, your sanctification and justification are more closely tied and they're not separable. Um, and uh, therefore, when James is saying, you know, I'll show you my faith by my works and that therefore you must do works in order to be justified. And, in fact, I can probably bring that up. I, I brought up a table that talks about that a little bit. This is in Wikipedia, so uh, this is what the world thinks, right? Um, the world thinks that there are different... So we're, when we talk about these things, this aspect of salvation, when we talk about justification and sanctification and conversion and regeneration, let me tell you something. That's all Christian. You don't see that in other religions, so this is what makes us unique and weird and why the world hates us. We are this unique, weird bunch. But even with this, we argue about what that means, what justification and sanctification means. And we're going to actually see some of that here in chapter 6 as we move through. And it has to do with can your salvation be lost or not? Um, how much do you participate in the work that God is doing in your life and how much does he do for you? That's what that's about. And we're not going to argue about that. Jesus doesn't argue about it. Right? If, if Jesus was arguing about it, we might argue about it. Um, but we will build our theologies, our compartments around that. So that's what this passage is about. It's about the process of salvation. How you are saved. How you actually have eternal life within you. Such that if you believe in him and die, you will live. And if you live and believe in him, you will never die. Right? That's where we're going with this. And what he says here, he says, not that anyone has ever seen the Father, except, I'm in verse 46 of John chapter 6. It says, not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So he's, he's clearly explaining to him the Christ is the one who was in heaven with the Father, and he has come down. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. That's a, that's a nice, clear statement. If you believe, you have eternal life. Now, we might say, well, what does that mean, to believe? And we're going to ask that. And then he wants to be clear. He says, I am the bread of life. If you want life, you have to get it from me. That's what he's saying. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. It's all about life and death here. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now he's, now he's going to be upsetting to him. He's made a statement that that life is in him and that he came down out of heaven, and that you need to eat this bread. 
in order to live forever. And that it says here, the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he's talking about his physical body. He's going to give everything that is human in the course of saving humanity. That's what he's saying here. He says, then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's like, okay, we can be really literal here, and that's pretty scary. Uh, what, yeah, this is like, you know, this is what the Gentiles do. They're crazy like this. They do stupid things like this, right? They eat each other, and it's forbidden, you know? Even Noah said that that was forbidden for all flesh, you know? And here, this guy, who is a Jew, is saying that we need to, uh, he's giving us his flesh to eat. So they were, try- they were wrestling with this question. What is salvation? What is conversion? What is regeneration? What is going on here? How can a man be born again? How can he enter into the womb a second time? He's giving us a picture of a spiritual reality, but he has to use temporal, time-bound, um, common words that we all understand. We understand bread, and we understand that you are what you eat. Really, you are what you eat. If you want to change your, your physical health, you change your diet. Right? And the world will tell you that. In fact, they'll give you all sorts of diets and and aids to that so that you can take a pill instead of eating, right? And all that kind of stuff, right? It says, so Jesus said to them, because he knew they were confused, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Well, that just made much easier, right? It actually did. That's right. He's saying, you need to assimilate me completely. And, and it's interesting because, you know, we were arguing about justification and sanctification, how much we do and how much God does. The life is in the blood. The life is in the sacrifice that Christ made for us. It isn't in us. We don't have that life in ourselves. It's what God does for us. But what we do is we open our mouth. We take it in. We make a decision that our life is based on him and his promise and his life. And that we live according to that belief. It changes the choices we make. Our, our values are different. That's what's happening here. It doesn't mean that your behavior is perfect. Because we're still wrestling out, living in the world, and yet being a citizen of another kingdom. But what it does mean is that you are truly transformed. If you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have assimilated the life of God as your own. And he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let me tell you what, that's a promise. That's a promise that as you're sitting here today, whether you live or die is not important. What is important is that if you are in Christ, you will never die. You will be raised at the last day, and as as we've got further revelation through Paul and others, that we actually have an uncorrupted body when we are raised. 
that as Christ is in his glory, as he ascended into heaven in his glorified body, and he will return in that glorified body, we will be as he is. It says that in Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 4. I'm just going to jump ahead and I'll read it to you. These are important things as we put together Old Testament, New Testament, what it all means. It says here, it says in chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of Greek grammar here. That's a, a, a statement that's like an equal sign. When Christ, who equals our life, uh, that's a particular type of grammatical construction that associates the two. Christ is our life. When he is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. That his life is your life. And let me tell you, the fact that he was raised from the dead gives me a lot of assurance that I will be raised. He told me I would be raised on the last day. That I will be with him. That as he has life in himself, he gives me that life. That's the promise. And either he's good for his promise or he's not. And if he's not good for his promise, we're all lost. Right? And Paul says that. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. But that's not the truth. (coughs) The truth is, is that Jesus does have life in himself. He conquered death. He proved it on the cross. He proved it in the resurrection. And that that is what we need. That's the bread of life. And that that bread and that blood is true life. And that's what he's saying here. Right? And he says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, that idea of abiding in Christ, remaining in him, and I will abide in him. As the living Father, and this is interesting, he puts this word living in front of the declaration of Father as part of the Godhead here. It says, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. He can't get any more clear than that using phenomenal language. When I say phenomenal language, that's the language that we use to describe the world around us. He has to use a language we can understand, and he says it as clear as he can. But then he goes on, he says, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, we're, we're going to get to it here. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? This is hard stuff. This is as high as the heavens are above the earth. I don't get it. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What if you actually see this glorification firsthand? And they did, by the way. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. He's given us the key to understanding. It's not about the flesh and the blood as we understand flesh and blood. It's about God becoming man, that God loved us so much that he came down to to save us, 
and that he gave everything that is humanly possible, both in his ministry and in his death, and everything that is divinely possible in order to save us. He died in our place. And that he then demonstrated to give us hope what that glorification looks like, what that life in him looks like, both in after uh, resurrection ministry and in ascension, and allowing those that loved him to see him ascend. And he says, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. This is a hard verse. We'll get to that one later because we're out of time. But I will say this. We will finish this. It says, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So this is the division point, folks. What does it mean to really believe in Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple? You can know him, but what does it mean to believe him? What does it mean to assimilate the life of God within you? What does it mean to eat the flesh and the blood of Christ? That's what we do as Christians. And when we do that, it changes the way that we live. Our life is no longer our own. It is his We are in Christ. And we may not feel like we're in Christ, but God's word is true and sure. And and we know from his resurrection that it's true and sure. God has called us. He has made a way. And what happens is, is that you get to declare where you stand. God gives you choice. You get to enter in or not. You get to do the thing that will separate you from the rest of the world and maybe even cost you your life. Or not. But there is no life in no one else. And that's what happens here. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's what's, that's what's before you today. That's what's before you every day. That's who you're following. Jesus said to them, Did I myself not choose you? The twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. Now, what that means is that God knows that not all choose him. God knows that some have their own agenda. But when you set aside your agenda... When you set aside your kingship, when you make room at your table, what you find is that you're not making room at your table for the Son of God. He actually is making room at his table for you. That's what's really going on here. And this is something that you're going to ruminate over again and again and again. But what I can say is you are what you eat. And if you eat the Son of God, you truly have life. And that that life is expressed in numerous promises. And on the toughest day of your life, that's what you're going to hold on to. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for 
that which you chose to preserve through your servant John, that you would uh, challenge us with the same words that challenged uh, people there by the Sea of Galilee, that uh, it's a hard thing. We, it's hard for us to understand, even though these words are spirit and they're truth and life, um, Lord, they are hard for us to understand, and yet we trust you. We believe you. And our life is in you. There is no other. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you preserved it through John, that you challenge us with it today, and that you challenge us with it every day. I mean, that if we look at things from the reasoning of the world, they make no sense. But if we look at things in faith, we see you and your city. And Lord, that's what we desire. We desire the city of God. We desire your coming. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for while we're in this world that you preserve us, that you protect us, that you care for us so tenderly. Lord, we ask that you would um, continue that provision and protection. It's a dangerous world, and there's just a lot going on. Thank you so much for the many answered prayers and sharing shared this morning and answered prayer. And I know that everybody else, if they had to speak up, would be able to share some aspect of their life that is an answered prayer, whether they spoke it audibly or not. Lord, we thank you for that, for your provision, your care for us. And we ask that you uh, go before us this day and this week, bring us back together if it's your will, and be with Pastor Bob this morning as he presents your word, that others might hear and come to know you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this in your name we pray. Amen. Next Sunday. Yep. Uh, Pastor Bob, we're going to talk about the Dan Wallace Sunday Sunday in Rome. Yes. The Sunday school hour, Dan Wallace is going to do a uh, presentation in the auditorium, uh, separate from the Roman stuff. It's going to be basically how we got the New Testament, why we know it's reliable, so it's a really good session. Yes. So this class will not meet next week. We'll meet in the auditorium. Uh, Dan Wallace is, uh, Dr. Wallace, is the most incredible uh, scholar that I've ever had the opportunity to, to meet and, and study under. I've read several of his books. Uh, of course, he's a conservative theology guy, so I like that. Please come, because you, you'll be incredibly blessed uh, through all of it, through the study of Romans and the study of uh, New Testament. Thank you.